I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Laura Kutzel. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the latest market dynamics impacting executives and their customers. Today, we're joined by principal analysts Dan Beeler and Enza Yanopolo to discuss Forrester's 2023 predictions for Europe. Welcome both. Thanks for having me. Hey, thank you for having me. So before we dive in to our 2023 predictions for Europe, let's just take a look at what's happening today. How is the situation in Europe different or differing from that of other regions? First of all, I think at a very high level, what is important to notice, of course, is that Europe will have to decide not just in 2023, but in the years ahead, what is its role between the big super blocks, the US and China. And in addition, what matters a lot for 2023 are, of course, the the high energy prices and the ongoing war. And these two factors alone will determine a lot in terms of where the European economy is heading. In terms of the debate around the economic performance in Europe, we might not have a full recession in all countries, meaning two successive negative quarters of GDP growth, because overall the EU is supposed to grow just at a very low rate of roughly 0.3% in terms of GDP. But there are big differences. So whilst Ireland seems to be having a fairly respective um, growth rate of 3% in 2023, there are other countries like Germany and the UK that will see some negative growth rates of um, 0.6 and 0.4% respectively. Other countries like Switzerland, Norway, France are somewhere in between. But to put this in context, um, this is not as bad as what we saw in the um, 2008 recession, where we had a negative 4% growth rate in the EU. And it's also nowhere near the pandemic negative growth rates of 5.9%. So yes, it will not be an easy year, 2023, but it's not all doom and gloom. And one needs to be also careful um, to, to define exactly what kind of country we are talking about, because there are some positive um, pockets between some of the more challenging um, economies out there. Yes, then to that, I would just um, add one factor that really has to do with uh, managing the um, high cost of the of the energy. And we have seen um, uh, industrial companies really trying to do their best to reduce the consumption um, of, of, the, uh, of energy. And we are talking very much about um, energy intensive producers of chemicals, metals in particular, and they are cutting back on that production to save on electricity cost. Of course, with an expectation that the cost of electricity will stay high still for a good part of 2023, there is a real risk that some of these companies won't be able to go back to their normal level of production um, that, that quickly. And, um, and so I think this is an important element that we have to consider also as we move forward. And we have also started to see clearly a reduction of corporate investments in general. Uh, there is consumer spending is stagnating. There is, a, as we are seeing, a, considering, um, a considerable uh, high cost inputs and then tightening financial condition. All of that really 
uh, making it difficult for a corporate investment to happen. So while it's not all doom and gloom, there are some elements very specific to Europe that we have to keep watching to figure out what happens next. It's probably fair to say that this winter, the winter from 22 to 23, will be easier to manage because of the, the capacity that we have built up in the storage system than the next winter, 23 to 24, because it will be a challenge to refill all the gas um, storage systems. And on another positive side, I think that Europe has understood that building out the renewables is an absolutely important part of creating a healthy energy mix going forward. Yeah, that's absolutely fair. So this winter will be okay. No warrants about next winter. So then as we've all pointed out, although it's not all doom and gloom, there are some fairly formidable challenges here, both in the short term uh, for the beginning of 2023 and as we get into the next winter. So I think one of the things that we noticed when putting together our predictions for Europe for 2023 was that these challenges were going to take a big toll on the trust of citizens. So Enza, I wondered if you could comment a bit about that, uh, sort of why we made that prediction and what specifically we expect to happen. Yes, Laura. Um, so the prediction is that by the end of 2023, only one in five European citizens will trust their government. Um, and so let me start from uh, our, our data, right? We have a very rich set of data through our trust survey. We ran the survey in January 2022. So it was before the war and the sharp worsening of the economic conditions. And at that point, as many as 25% of European citizens uh, said that they trust their government. Now, that number was already low if you compare it with other regions. For example, in the US, we had about 40% of citizens saying that they trust their government. But um, even in Europe, at that point, we had some very strong statements from, uh, uh, from citizens. For example, about 40% agreed that government protects uh, their people during and after a crisis. As many as 30% of European citizens said they believe the government acts on the, uh, um, at the interest of people, at the best interest or the best interest of, of its people. So when we saw the data, we clearly um, uh, saw a connection from uh, these answers to the pandemic management. We know that the last year, the last two years, when um, you know, we cope we with the pandemic, governments supporting people financially, the EU made a lot of substantial resources available, as well as the UK government did. And there were then the vaccine campaigns, there were exceptions, but I think generally the feeling was that citizens' health and safety was very core to government function. And there is a very sharp contrast with what we see today. And in fact, since January 2022, when we collected that data, uh, there was invasion of Ukraine, the war, the rising inflation rates, financial instability, all those elements of the macroeconomic scenario that we have, um, have commented on. Um, also, some of the countries in Europe, like the uh, UK, Italy, went through some unplanned political changes, and we have seen also social unrest um, against some government's policies and the, the cost of energy, all of that happening and all of that um, eroding trust in government. And now, if I think about the research that we have been doing, I 
Um, and confidence is that the governments are actually not responding well to the erosion of trust that actually is happening already. When we published the trust imperative in May 2021, we have defined seven letters, seven key elements that, are sh that, that shape how people trust. This is true for consumer trusting brands and employees trusting their employers, but also citizens trusting their governments. We also understand that every single company needs trust in a different way. And so we really did some qualitative and quantitative study to understand which set of letters really shape the way uh, um, people trust companies in specific industry and governments. When I say levers, I mean things like transparency and um, dependability or uh, empathy and integrity. When it comes to government, accountability is very important to shape the way citizens trust governments, in fact. What we have been seeing since this started, since this crisis started, has been governments trying to push on other institutions some of the responsibility to keep people safe. For example, in the UK, the government has been forcing financial services organizations to take care of vulnerable customers, vulnerable citizens. Uh, there was a push for utility providers to really uh, tell people to use less gas and less energy um, and really also talk about scenarios of potential blackout and things of that nature. Pushing away the responsibility from government to other institutions is certainly diminishing the impact of accountability and it's so crucial for trust. And so consider all there is going on. I think, yes, by the end of 2023, um, one in five European citizens will trust their government. Wow, that is a crazy number. And I mean, not so shocking, I guess, based on the dynamics you just mentioned, Enza, but still, I'm assuming that's a pretty bold call to be making. Yeah, it's a pretty low level of trust in governments. I've said at the very beginning, this is already in 2022, we have seen European trust in governments to be low, but certainly these are further decrease. And also such a sharp contrast with, again, what is going on in other regions. I mentioned the US, but also Asia Pacific is actually we are expecting there to see increased level of trust. So um, again, Europe is going to face, European governments are going to face their very, very unique situations. So we also obviously made predictions in the work realm, um, including the adoption of an anywhere work in Europe. So can, can you expand upon what we'll see there in 2023? Yeah, we predict that about a third of European companies will have to offer anywhere work conditions. And just to put this into a little bit of context, um, we need to remind ourselves that about half of the workforce out there are frontline workers. So doctors, nurses, bus drivers, people working in manufacturing and so on. People who can't work in an office, they need to be out there and they therefore don't have the, the typical anywhere work conditions where they sit nicely um, at home. They need to be in a in the kind of location where um, the actual work is happening in terms of them working on um, a, a patient or teaching kids and so on. And if you take this into account, then actually we believe that it's two thirds of office jobs that will be based on anywhere working conditions. and. To, to um, look at the situation as it is right now, 
we see that currently about one quarter, one third of jobs are taking place in a anywhere working condition um, context. The percentage was higher during the peak of the pandemic for the obvious reasons of the lockdowns. But we believe that actually the vast majority of businesses will offer remote working conditions, uh, conditions that make it possible for people in an office job to occasionally work from home because the expectations from employees is actually such that about 70% um, do expect to be allowed to work occasionally from home or in a remote location. And currently the statistics, the survey data show that employees are willing to come to the office for about 1.5 days per week. The office itself is taking on a different role, of course. It's no longer just good enough to be provided with a cubicle where you can spend your time from nine to five. You want to go to the office to have some meetings with colleagues, with partners, with clients, to work collaboratively, to explore new ideas in an in-person kind of context. So the office is taking on a completely different role from what we have seen in the past. And this means that businesses need to rethink um, how they um, allocate the time and also how they structure time so that people who work together actually come to the office at the same time. And I think this is an important um, takeaway for 2023 that um, here we are talking about uh, a real reshift in terms of how you need to think about talent management, um, about management in general. We see that some companies are actually trialing four-day um, work weeks to also entice their frontline workers, for instance, people who work in manufacturing or field service technicians to see some, some benefits of the, the shift towards a hybrid working and much more flexible working environment because it's not just the, the geographic location that matters, of course, it's the flexibility as well, the flexibility to choose the time of day or the week when you want to work. And we see that um, there is um, also a drive towards rethinking, certainly in the European context, the possibility to work internationally so many companies have put in place clear strategies for um, allowing their, their workers, their employees to work from different European locations. And this is being reflected also in the legislation. And we do see that on the level of the right to work in general, the right to work from home, I should say, um, in general, this is um, being reflected in the legislation already of Ireland, of Spain, the Netherlands, and IT. But 12 other European countries are debating this right to work from home already. And so there is a, a big mix of different activities that is taking place to really drive the, the greater expectations by employees for greater flexibility. Got it. And as of course, as an added bonus for letting your employees work from home, maybe you don't have to heat quite so many offices uh, for the for the companies, given that that's become vastly more expensive over the over the last few months. So I'll go back to the energy uh, arena for a minute that we were talking about earlier as well, which is that one of the effects that we think that we'll see in 2023 is that European consumers and citizens are going to become greener. Uh, in response to the higher cost of energy. 
So Enza, I wonder if you could tell you tell us a little bit about why we're predicting that, although the energy crisis does seem like an obvious cause, and exactly what we think will happen, because we think something in particular is going to change. Yes, and I, I really love this prediction. It was a little uh, controversial, I think, but um, here it is. We are predicting that by the end of 2023, the number of uh, active green consumers in Europe will grow by 50%. So we started exploring our green consumer segmentation, which is really a segmentation that helps us understand how consumers are behaving in relation to sustainability. And we know today that in Europe, we have about 24% of consumers that are already active green consumers. It means that these consumers are actively trying to reduce the impact of their consumption on the environment. So they, they uh, are preferring uh, green goods when they uh, buy things. They generally buy less. Um, and they are fundamentally adopting all those behaviors that, again, reduce their impact on, on the environment. Um, together with this group, which is 24%, I said, we have to look into the next group that we have defined. We call them the convenient greens. These consumers, Europe has 26% of them today, these consumers in in their ideas and in their mind, they understand that the environment matter, climate change is a real risk, and they really feel they should do something about it. But then in reality, they struggle to change behavior. They struggle to adopt those behaviors that actually reduce their impact. Um, and so as often happens when there is a crisis, that's the moment in which we see consumers actually change behaviors, having those kind of nudges that they need so that they can can change behavior. And this is what fundamentally we think is going to happen. A lot of those convenient greens that, again, from a thought process perspective, they, they are there. They understand I need to consume less energy. I need to take the bike instead of taking my car. I need probably to wear another sweatshirt rather than putting on the, the heat in my house. Um, all, those, all those activities will become the norm, are becoming the norm already because, and that was the sentence we use fundamentally, your values are going to be more aligned to your wallet. So some of the things that you would do uh, uh, normally now are be, have just become more expensive. And so the, the, the management and the cost of it um, is going gonna, is gonna, to um, help these consumers shift their behaviors and effectively becoming a greener consumers, active green consumers, as we say. From the predictions, it also seems like there's some shifts underfoot in terms of uh, which types of companies workers will be gravitating towards um, for a number of reasons. So maybe we can dive into some of those shifts underway as we see them in 23 as well. Sure. So we predict that um, tech devaluations and layoffs will make jobs in older and more traditional businesses more attractive, relatively speaking. Um, we have seen the um, announced headcount reductions in Silicon Valley. We have seen some um, hiring freezes in other companies. But if we look closely in terms of what um, roles we are talking about, we see that most of these activities are not affecting the top digital talent. Currently, we see that sales, marketing, people working in divisions, departments that are not doing too well are most at risk. But we do not see any indication 
that people with top digital talents are really at risk. And therefore, we don't think that the current dynamics are addressing one of the, the biggest challenges in the job market overall, and that's the scarcity, the shortage of digital skill sets. Now, having said that the traditional businesses out there that are potentially attracting employees in 2023, that is, of course, um, the case for a certain type of employer. But um, to use this phrase, the beauty is um, in the eye of the beholder. We need to remember that um, not everybody would be immediately attracted to a more conservative, traditional business just because of the dynamics that we see in a more challenging economic environment. Different um, ages, different um, career stages um, have an impact on the desire to learn, on the um, desire to maybe earn different salaries. And the traditional businesses, um, they provide clearly a um, a more secure environment in terms of hiring and firing. There is stability um, also in the sense of uh, a more balanced work and life um, situation. Um, potentially the, the wages are more solid. And also um, there are attractions like pension schemes and so on. But um, maybe for Gen Z type of employees with top digital skills, they say the digital tech space they offer us fast-paced learning. They, they are prepared for a higher um, risk-reward kind of career prospect. Uh, maybe they're interested in option-based earnings. And so, yes, the traditional businesses are becoming more attractive to many types of workers, but we should be careful not to apply this to all types of workers because there are people with the top digital skill sets that will be still very attractive by the, the digital um, native type of businesses out there. It's also interesting to see how the trust research plays into this space. Um, across Europe, we know, for example, that in Germany, there is a very, very high degree in established traditional organizations, while in countries like Spain or Italy, there is much more trust in the startups or digital-only companies. And so also this aspect of how trustworthy certain industry and organizations are seen certainly will play a role in determining those sheets as we move forward in terms of um, uh, employment. All right. So on the topic of trust, Laura, I'm going to turn the tables on you as my, my co-host here as a guest. And, um, you know, there was new legislation in Germany that, you know, I think, I think is is meant to kind of grow trust in in a certain um, in supply chain and in certain industries. So maybe you can expand upon what we what we think we're going to see there in twenty three. Sure. So the Supply Chain Act in Germany, which I will not endeavor to pronounce in the in the original German, so as not to offend my listeners, uh, is going to boost supply chain monitoring technology spend. We think, and so you might be thinking, okay, Germany is not the first country even in Europe, to require firms to do a better job of policing their supply chains. The UK has got a modern slavery act to make this from 2015, I think, to make sure that companies are not using slave labor in producing their products throughout their supply chain, not just in the bits that they directly control, but also among their suppliers. And the Netherlands has a, sim has a similar piece of legislation, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing that makes the supply chain act that comes into effect at the beginning of 2023 in Germany, noteworthy, 
is that it's much broader. And also Germany has a large manufacturing sector. It's of course the powerhouse in manufacturing here in Europe. And so what happens in 2023 is that companies that have, have more than 3000 employees and do business in Germany, regardless of where they're headquartered. So this is not only for German headquartered firms, but for everyone who does business in Germany, they've got to monitor their supply chains for not just slave labor type practices, but also for a bunch of different protections of human rights and also protections against environmental damage. And they're required to report and act on any violations of those specific conditions. And they face rather substantial fines, up to 8 million euros or potentially 2% of global turnover. So a fine scheme that's much like what we've seen in the European General Data Protection Regulation, which of course has caused companies to sit up and take notice since it came into effect. So, and then in, I think in 2024, companies that are a bit smaller, so ones with only a thousand employees will also have to comply with this law. So it's going to apply to a reasonably large number of companies, not so many directly in 2023, although it is hundreds, I think it's like 600 companies estimated, but as of 2024, it'll be yet more. And those companies are going to have to do a much better job of monitoring than the sort of stereotypical, we send a questionnaire to our suppliers once a year to make sure that they're not doing anything terrible. Rather, they're actually going to have to monitor in real time. And so there are a bunch of different technology companies that supply, that supply various products for actually doing real time uh, supply chain monitoring across all sorts of places. Because fundamentally, if I'm the, man, if I'm the company that sells the product, regardless of which of my suppliers is violating these conditions, I am ultimately going to be considered liable. So that's going to be going to cause a bunch of different behavior, both in terms of hopefully protecting human rights and protecting the environment and all of this, and also spending a bunch more time and energy on actually doing monitoring. So it'll be very interesting to see uh, how quickly there are actions taken uh, with this law, I think I don't know that we can expect it to happen instantaneously if GDPR enforcement is any guide, but I'd imagine we'd expect to see enforcement and substantial enforcement over the coming years. So needless to say, lots of dynamics um, happening in 2023. And so I think, you know, taking a look at all of the things that we've predicted here today, what are a few key important steps that European firms and leaders should be taking as, you know, as we enter uh, 2023 in the new year? Important action is definitely, I think, around trust. And the research uh, that we have done really shows that trust is ingrained in us, right? As human beings, if we don't trust certain institutions, we are going to redirect that trust somewhere else. And as consumer citizens in Europe tend to trust governments less, well, there is an opportunity for organizations to become that center of trust that increase the trustworthiness that they have with the consumers to help them out in those, uh, you know, in the challenges that they have. And so, um, again, it's very important for organizations to realize that trust doesn't happen by chance. Uh, the, the whole research shows that there are very specific steps, very specific elements that actually shape the way uh, uh, consumers trust brands. And for every brand, potentially, there is a, a different set of, of levers that are very, very important if they, want con if they want to influence the way 
their consumers are, are trusting their brands or their employees are trusting uh, their, their companies. And so this is really the time to get a little bit more scientific around trust, really understand which are the dynamics here at play, which are the elements, the levers that are critical in certain industries and get to work on that. So I think it's a, um, it's a great opportunity to really uh, just earn trust for, from consumers at this point in time. Um, a second important step would be to embrace anywhere work as a way to bolster the competitive competitivity for talent and also to control energy costs. So anywhere work is a tool in the war for talent, and that's still ongoing. And there are three facets, really. It's the flexibility that matters, flexibility in terms of time, the geography, and also the potential to work internationally. We see that it's not just about tech, but anywhere work is also about putting in place the right processes, the right operational structures, and certainly also the right culture. And the right culture also implies that you need to rethink your approach to management, management training, and um, the EX, the employee experience strategy that you put, uh, that you need to drive for 2023. And then from our energy perspective, we see that anywhere work can really be a tool in the box of controlling the expenses that you have on energy. If you, for instance, increase the potential for more remote working, you might not want to um, heat up your office as much. Alternatively, you can offer um, employees the um, opportunity to spend more time at work, not more than they have to, but certainly to open up the office as a place where they have at least some access to warm working spaces and therefore they might not have to heat up their home. So there are different um, possibilities how anywhere work can support um, the, the drive to keep the energy costs under control. And then we talk about the uh, green consumers and, and sustainability and I think what our prediction does there is we um, show how the crisis potentially can reduce what we call the cognitive dissonance. Fundamentally People that believe something is important, there is a value to them, but they struggle to change behaviors. We see uh, the crisis will help some of these consumers really solve that cognitive dissonance, but the reality is that many other consumers will still struggle. And, and this is a problem. Uh, and brands should help consumers really solve that cognitive dissonance. This is not just because it's good for the planet, for the environment, especially when it comes to sustainability. But also, uh, we know from our research that actually cognitive dissonance generates a number of negative uh, emotions, discomfort, frustration, stress. So if brands are helping consumers around sustainability, we need to solve that cognitive dissonance. They are really creating a win-win situation here. And there is some amazing research from my colleagues, Tomao Son and um, Alicia Chaudet, that actually identifies barriers to a greener uh, behavior uh, and, and also help um, brands understand what they can do to really help consumers overcome that, that cognitive dissonance. Clear communication and education is definitely one thing. Incentivizing uh, consumers to really shift to more sustainable um, uh, lifestyle choices and making sure as a certain point, that actually sustainable options are always available. There are some brands that are making other, uh, sustainable options the only available. So an, a range of actions, but fundamentally, there is a big call for brands to help consumers shift those greener behaviors. And a fourth step is aimed specifically at the traditional incumbent firms. They should tackle the cultural aspect of transformation. 
and also the elements of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Because one thing we do know for sure is that after any kind of economic downturn or recession, there will be a recovery. And in the war for talent, they need to position themselves as more attractive employers going forward. So they don't want to miss the point where they still look old and tired. They want to make sure that they use 2023 to really brush up their, their image, their brand, and also transform their culture or put at least in place the building blocks for a different type of culture. When um, at the end of 2023 or the beginning of 2024, the likes of startups or digital native players will become potentially much more attractive once again. And on the supply chain front, I think the companies to whom the new law will apply in 2024 should get started right now if they haven't started already, because monitoring your entire supply chain on a consistent basis to make sure that your suppliers aren't violating a bunch of different provisions is not a small task. And so for the for the probably thousands of companies to whom the rules will apply, not this year, but I hope the companies to whom it applies this year have already done a bunch of stuff. Uh, if you haven't, I'd recommend starting now. But for the companies who to whom it'll apply in 2024, I wouldn't assume enforcement will drive on and on and on into the future. So get started now if you haven't already. Great. Well, thank you everyone for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It was great being here. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me too. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, or drop us a note at podcast at Thanks for listening.